All right. Oh, wow. Wasn't that fun? I had fun. I, you know what I love? I love watching a room full of people worship. I've always loved that. Let me just tell you, my first encounter with worship, I was, I was raised in a Catholic church, and worship doesn't look like that there. Worship is very, um, very orderly in a Catholic church. And, um, and so my first experience with worship like that, I was 14 years old and I had just been introduced to this whole new way of godding. Can I say it like that? <laughs> and I said, I had been to the youth group that was associated with this church, but for the first time, my brother, my mom, and I went to their Sunday morning service. Now, you've got to remember, all I know up to this point is a Catholic service. I've never been to any other service, just a Catholic service. And in, the, in my understanding of the Catholic Church was that we were competing to be the loudest and finish the first. Because I was raised by Alice McCarthy. Yes, just my family. Just my family competes in church. I come by this innocently, my, my competitive nature. But anyway, and then there's a whole lot of standing, sitting, kneeling, all this. This is all I know. I walk into the service, and I kid you not, this is my first Sunday there. And worship is happening. And, like, with the first song, I'm crumbling inside. I mean, there is something going on, and I am holding back tears. Like, I didn't know. My 14-year-old self is crumbling emotionally. I'm like, I have no idea what's happening to me but I'm trying really hard. And then all of a sudden, people start running around the room. I kid you not. They were doing laps around the sanctuary. And I'm like, now I'm a little weirded out. I'm like, this is new. Like we're going, whoa, we're, this is weird. And, and then if that wasn't enough, people are raising their hands. And, and not this, kids. Not this, like, not, let's not break the plane here. I mean, like, these people were all in, and they're jumping around, and they're shouting things. See, in a Catholic church, they might raise their voice, but they're all together doing, there, there was order. Yeah, it's very chanting. Yeah, chanting. We'll call it chanting. Um, and then, you guys, I kid you not, this is my first Sunday. The worship portion of the service has fallen to a hush and somebody stands up and starts in. I'm going, what in the world is going on? I mean, at this point, I'm a little, I'm going, ah! like everything in me is like, I don't know. But at the same time, intrigued, right? 14 years old, have no grid for any of this. And I don't know whether to run or stay. You know, like, I don't know whether to just like hide or want more of this. And then that person sits down, another man stands, and never mind, I won't tell you that, <laughs> and, and starts to say things out loud in English. And I'm like, what is going on here? I had no, no grid for this at all. Years later, find out that this is like somebody, this is very orderly in the church, although it was chaos to me. Like somebody gets up and, and delivers a message in tongues. And another stands to interpret what it is that the Lord is saying. This is my first experience with the kingdom of heaven. 
bizarre. And it ruined me. Absolutely ruined me. And so from that moment on, I have loved displays of worship. I love displays of worship. I crave it, not just for myself, but for you. I crave it. I long to see you completely abandoned in your worship. I'll tell you another story. And this all has, some, this all has everything to do with what I'm teaching. I was probably about 16 years old, and we had gone to my first ever youth conference, Acquire the Fire with Ron Luce. This was wild. I thought what had happened at my church was wild because they were doing the healing thing and, and speaking in tongues and all of these crazy wild things. But then I show up to this Acquire the Fire event and, um, you know, year, years later I realized there were some things going on there that just probably weren't as holy as they appeared. But to be in a room full of kids my age that are abandoned in worship, giving everything they had to him. I stood there bawling, 16 years old, and I'm bawling. I'm going, how did they, how did they get here? Because the, the kids that I'm around all the time, they're, they're, this is not what it looks like. They stand there while all the adults in the room ascribe worth, right? But not here. In this place, was a, it was a large Assembly of God church, and it was filled with teenagers. And you looked stupid when you weren't the one, right? You were the one that looked odd because you weren't going all in, because everyone around you was. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I want this. And so for the first time that night, 16 years old, I went all in. And I don't know if you know me well enough to know that you either have all of me or nothing. This is just my personality. I'm either all in or you don't have me, right? It's just who I am. And so that night, it wasn't just, remember last week, Lisa was talking about like dipping your toe in the pool to be like, I don't know, it's a little bit chilly. Right, And you just kind of like slowly introduce yourself to, I'm the one that gets up on the high dive when I decide, and I'm plunging. And that's what I did, and I was ruined. See, my, my experience with Jesus is moving from, we talk about going from glory to glory, but for me it's like one space of being ruined to the next space of being ruined. Never recovering. Never being able to go back because I'm ruined. I've seen him in a new light, and I can't go back. I cannot step backwards because I already know. I already know. My soul already knows. My soul already has intel on his goodness and what it feels like to be there, and now I can't get enough. So teenagers, I'm going to put you on notice. Are you listening to me? You're about to get ruined. You are. I know all of you well enough because we sit in a space together every Sunday night and your questions have given you away. I know the depth of your hunger based on your questions. I know that God is chasing you down. 
I know that right now he's being relentless with you. He's practically in your face 24-7, getting your attention. You're about to be ruined. You're about to plunge the depths of God. And you will never, ever go back. You'll never be the same. I, I wish the rest of you knew what I know about them. You should hear their questions. They sit here on Sunday night, and that's if that's not enough, they send messages. We have a group text, and they send messages that are just like, oh, my gosh. Wanting to know more about God, wanting to know more about them in God, and it's exciting. All right, let's do it. Let's do some teaching. Yes, can we get excited about that? I know. I know. Listen, you teenagers, you're, you're going to be ruined, and you're not going to be able to follow the steps of those that have gone before you and do the same things because you're ruined. In fact, I'm going to put a little responsibility on you. I'm just going to put a demand on your life right now. Not only are you not going to follow in the steps of those that have gone before you, you're going to pull them up to where you are so they can experience and encounter God the way that you are. You're about to go all in, and it's going to be uncomfortable, and it's going to be great. Psalm 29.1, ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Who are the heavenly beings? Us. Ascribe to the Lord, all you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Wow. What does ascribe mean? To say or think that something is caused by, comes from, or is associated with a particular person or thing. We cannot ascribe worth to his name until we rightly know him. We can give it our best. But like I was saying, I've gone from one space of being ruined to the next. At each new advancement, I'm ascribing greater worth and value to his name because that's actually what we're made to do is ascribe worth to his name. Listen to this. The word worship comes from an old English word, worthship. Say worthship. It means to ascribe worth to someone. We worship God because he's worthy. Our worship ascribes worth to him because of who he is and what he does. These opening verses give us reasons why our God is worthy of worship. It's like that song that we just sang together. And I hope you felt the energy in the room. Because there was. There was a holy energy in the room. And they kept singing the same line over and over and over again. Who are you, great mountain? You shall not bow low. And I want us to start looking at the circumstances in our lives, the things that are standing in our way, the things that are bogging us down, the things that are weighty, the things that we can't seem to look around. And I want you to look at dead in the eye and say, who are you, great mountain? That you should not bow low. And the only reason that mountain is going to respond to you is when you look and act like Jesus. This is why we ascribe worth to him. We can't know him until our heart is postured in a place of giving him worth. When we create spaces and pockets of worship, we're ascribing worth to him and it's changing us. 
It's changing who we are so that we can look at the mountains, at the circumstances that are not God, that are in our lives, and we can say, who are you that you should not bow low? It says that, the, that faith the size of what? A mustard seed. That faith the size of a mustard seed. Do you know how big a mustard seed is? Very, very little. Very, very little. Faith the size of a mustard seed can say to that mountain, get up and move. But we have to know who he is. And I want to look at, I want to look at Job's life. I want to look at Job's life because Job's life is spectacular, you guys. I actually joked the other day and, uh, well, a couple weeks ago after John got into a wreck and I was like, because, you know, there are seasons in our life where everything goes wrong. And I was like, this is what happens when your husband's favorite book is Job. (laughs) Well, that, yes. (laughs) That that is that's true. You're alive, and I'm thankful for that. Um, let's look at let's read Job one. Just we're gonna go one through five. I've got some eyelash issues, tangled eyelashes. Anybody else ever experienced that? That's obnoxious. Tangled eyelashes. Fix yourself. Job one. <laughs> Sorry, I distracted the room. Job was a man who lived in us. I know. He was honest inside and out, a man of his word, who was totally devoted to God and hated evil with a passion. He had seven sons and three daughters. He was also very wealthy. 7,000 head of sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a huge staff of servants. The most influential man in the East. Interesting, right? His sons used to take turns hosting parties in their homes, always inviting their three sisters to join them in their merrymaking. When the parties were over, Job would get up early in the morning and sacrifice a burnt offering for each of his children, thinking maybe one of them sinned by defying God inwardly. Job made a habit of this sacrificial atonement, just in case they sinned. Interesting, right? Sorry, this is really bothering me. Following this scenario, Job lost all of his livestock, all of his servants, and his children. You see, what happened was, is Satan, Satan goes before God and says, he like, he's like playing, he's playing his bets. He's like, I bet you that I can get Job to turn his back on you, God. And God's like, no, 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 no. See, I know Job, and this won't happen. Job won't turn his back on me. He's mine. Do what you will. Just don't harm him. 
And so that's how this happened. He lost all of his livestock, his entire staff, and his children. Job didn't turn his back on God. He did tear his robes. And he did put dirt over his head. Ashes is another way of seeing that. But we're reading out of the message, so it says dirt. Okay. So then... Satan comes before God again, and, and God says, So, Satan, how's my servant Job doing? Friend. Again, we're reading out of the message. <laughs> I should say friend, though. Um, and, and God's like, he didn't turn his back on me. And Satan says, yes, but if you, if you will take your protection off of him, he will. So he wants, to, he wants to up the ante, so to speak, right? Let's read what happens next. Well, we're not going to read it. I'm just going to tell you, and then we're going to read um, uh, chapter two. So then Job ends up with boils, ulcers, scabs all over his body. Now, listen, John has a wound on his arm that he can't stop itching right now because it's healing. Thank you, Jesus. But we're talking head to toe. Job is covered in oozing ulcers. Disgusting. And he's like, he can't stop itching it. He's scratching at himself, right? He's absolutely miserable. And then guess what happens? If losing all your children isn't bad enough, all of your livestock, that's his wealth, gone, He's covered in ulcers and looks disgusting, I'm sure. And his wife's like, can't you just renounce God? Can't you just lose this integrity and renounce God? She's like, I'm done. Job's like, no! I'm not going to do that. So she left him. Okay, so now he's lost all of his children all of his wealth, his health, and his wife. What happens next is very interesting. Job begins to question why he even exists. And I want us, to, as we read through these things, I want us to have something on our mind. What you ascribe worth to matters. What you ascribe worth to is what's important about you. If you ascribe worth to your wealth and your wealth is taken away, you're empty. If you ascribe worth to your children and your children are taken away, God forbid, then you lose that. You see where I'm going here? But when you ascribe worth to God, who is eternal and going nowhere, you always win. Always. So this is what happens next. Job has friends that are from different countries, mind you. And they come to sit with Job. They come to sit with Job for 
30 some chapters. <laughs> I don't know how much time has gone by, but 30 some chapters. This is an ongoing conversation between Job and his three friends. Let's read chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Three of Job's friends heard of all the trouble that had fallen on him. Each traveled from his own country. When they first caught sight of him, they couldn't believe what they saw. They hardly recognized him. They cried out in lament, ripped their robes, and dumped dirt on their heads as a sign of their grief. Then they sat with him on the ground. Seven days and nights they sat there without saying a word. They could see how rotten he felt, how deeply he was suffering. Did you guys catch that? For seven days and nights, not one of them uttered a word. Um, don't invite me if that's what you're doing. Seven days without talking? I could never. <laughs> I know, I feel the same way. But in chapter three, Job breaks his silence. And I want you to listen to what he said. Obliterate the day I was born. Blank out the night I was conceived. Let it be a black hole in space. May God above forget it ever happened. Erase it from the books. May the day of my birth be buried in deep darkness, shrouded by the fog, swallowed up by the night. And the night of my conception, the devil take it. Rip that date off the calendar. This is really dramatic, isn't it? Delete it from the almanac. Oh, turn that night into pure nothingness. No sounds of pleasure from the night ever. May those who are good at cursing curse that day. Unleash the sea beast, Leviathan, on it. May its morning stars turn to black cinders, waiting for a daylight that never comes, never once seeing the first light of dawn. And why? Because it released me from my mother's womb. Why didn't I die at birth? My first breath out of the womb, my last. Why were there arms to rock me and a breast to drink from? I could be resting in peace right now, asleep forever, feeling no pain, in the company of kings and statemen in their royal ruins. He would rather be in a grave. He would rather belong to death in the grave. Wow. Why wasn't I a stillborn and buried with all the babies who never saw light? where the wicked no longer trouble anyone and bone-weary people get a long-deserved rest. Prisoners sleep undisturbed, never again to wake up to the bark of the guards. The small and the great are equal in that place, and slaves are free from their masters. Seven days of not talking, and this is what he comes up with? Seven days of not talking, and this is what he's inspired to say. This is troubling. Why does God bother giving light to the miserable? Why bother keeping bitter people alive? Those who want in the worst way to die and can't, who can't imagine anything better than death, 
who count the day of their death and burial the happiest day of their life. What's the point of life when it doesn't make sense, when God blocks all the roads to meaning? Instead of bread, I get groans for my supper, then leave the table and vomit my anguish. The worst of my fears has come true. What I've dreaded most has happened. My repose is shattered, my peace destroyed. No rest for me ever. Death has invaded my life. Anyone in here feeling depressed? That is shocking. I want to remind you how we started off. Job was a man who lived in us. He was honest inside and out, a man of his word who was totally devoted to God and hated evil with a passion. He had seven sons and three daughters. He was also very wealthy, 7,000, blah, 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 blah. He was the most influential man in the East. The most influential man is now questioning his own existence. And what you'll find, and I suggest you do go and read this because it's fascinating, the conversation that he and his three friends end up having, having, and it has everything to do with right and wrong. It has everything to do with pleading their case before God. Where have you gone? Why have you done this to me? They're putting all the blame on God, and his friends get pulled. At first, you know, they're going, Job, like, chill. It's not that bad. But then eventually they get pulled into his line of thinking and they all start questioning God. Fascinating, isn't it? Get yourself some friends who will stand over your grave and not allow you to resurrect your old self. Yeah? You need to surround yourself with people who are going to call you higher Surround yourself with a council of people who will call the best out in you. Surround yourself with people who will sharpen you, who know the call on your life and will hold you to it. When you start to slip into this, why do I even exist? See, we're not this dramatic in word, but we are in thought. And that's just as bad because what we think, we become. And I've been around plenty of people who play the part of woe is me. My life, it sucks. Right? When we're really called to hold one another accountable to the throne, to the goodness of God, right? Yes? All right. Thank you. I love agreement. So Job rails against his own existence while his friends continue to interject their knowledge of right and wrong until the youngest among them opens his mouth. Now, he is just there because he is the son of. Elihu inserts a rebuttal, and this is fascinating. In Job 36.3, it says this, I will fetch my knowledge from afar off and will ascribe righteousness to my maker. Do you see what he's doing here? I'm going to read it again. I will fetch my knowledge. This is King James. I will fetch my knowledge from afar off and will ascribe righteousness to my maker. 
See, he's been sitting there listening to them at length discuss God. And he says, I got my knowledge from somewhere else. You all are pulling your knowledge from your circumstances. But mine comes from a space where he's enthroned on high. And that's where he ascribes forth from, is his knowledge of this God who is on high, who provides for everything. Let's read, let's read what Elihu says. We're going to start in chapter 36. Isn't this fascinating? I love when Elihu actually interrupts the conversation. He says, um, it says, then Elihu lost his temper. He blazed out in anger against Job for putting his righteousness against God's. Did you catch that? He blazed out in anger because Job was putting his own right standing against God's righteousness. What are we supposed to be doing? We stand in his rightness, correct? It's his righteousness that we put on, not our own. I've done this, this, and that, right? That's what we do, but that's functioning out of our own righteousness. Because what Jesus has done is what we have become. Do we get that? What Jesus has done is what we have become. We are to put his righteousness on. Everything that he has done is what we are to become. But so often we slip into our own righteousness, attempting to prove ourselves because of the things that are surrounding us have us riddled with fear. Yes? It's the same scenario that Job has found himself in. He's a man who has the most influence, right? Now everything is going wrong, and what does he do? He stands in his own righteousness. He stands in his own accomplishments and says, why have you let these things happen to me? However, there's always an invitation for us to stand in his righteousness to become what Jesus has done. Who are you, great Mount, that you should not be moved? It's a completely different posture because in my own accomplishment, the mountain doesn't have to respond to me. When I put on my own accomplishment, my own right standing, the things that I have done right. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with doing things right. But what I'm saying is when we wear that, creation won't respond because creation responds to the righteousness of God. Yes? Are we getting this? You have to put on the righteousness of God in order for the things that are around us to respond, to bow it says that he smashes every high thing. If you want to see high things smashed, put on his righteousness. Yes? What an invitation. How did we get this life? When we're over here in our righteousness, we're like, why is this happening? 
You heard me. You know this is what we do. Over here, we're woe is me because there's very little power in our own righteousness. And it says, what about our righteousness? It's as filthy rags. But not God's. Nothing can come against his righteousness. Isn't that fascinating? Here, we're we're mind-blown, wondering, how is this even possible that he's this good to me? No matter what is coming up against me, I can stand here and say, how is it possible that he's this good to me? If we want to not just see our circumstances changed, but we want to see cancer bow to the name of Jesus, that we want to see infertility bow to the name of Jesus, if we want to see those who are bedridden healed, we have to learn to walk in the righteousness of God because things respond to his name. We bear the name of Christ. Yes? Okay. So back to Elihu. This is so fun. We're going to skip his first and second speech. No, first, second, and third speech. And, 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 well, actually, I think we're going to join him in his third speech. Yes. Stay with me a little longer. I'll convince you. There's still more to be said on God's side. I learned all this firsthand from the source. Everything I know about justice, I owe to the maker myself. See, what he's, he's, he's already accused Job. He's like, Job, you've pulled God into the courtroom. You've got God on trial. Right? Trust me, I'm giving you undiluted truth. Believe me, I know these things inside and out. This is a very arrogant move for the youngest among them to be saying. Very, very arrogant. In fact, he introduces his talk by saying, I know, I'm the youngest among you, and I probably shouldn't be talking, but he can't hold it in anymore. He's heard enough. It's true that God is all-powerful, but he doesn't bully innocent people. For the wicked, though, it's a different story. He doesn't give them the time of day, but champions the rights of their victims. He never takes his eye off of the righteous. He honors them lavishly, promotes them endlessly. When things go badly, when affliction and suffering descend, God tells them where they've gone wrong, shows them how their pride has caused their trouble. He forces them to heed his warning, tells them they must repent of their bad life. If they obey and serve him, they'll have a good long life on easy street. But if they disobey, they'll be cut down in their prime and never know the first thing about life. Angry people without God pile grievance upon grievance, always blaming others for their troubles. Oh, Job, don't you see how God's wooing you from the jaws of danger? How he's drawing you into wide open places, inviting you to feast at a table laden with blessings? And here you are laden with the guilt of the wicked, obsessed with putting the blame on God. Don't let your great riches mislead you. Don't think you can bribe your way out of this. 
Did you plan to buy your way out of this? Not on your life. And don't think that night when people sleep off their troubles will bring you any relief. Above all, don't make things worse with more evil. And that's what's behind your suffering as it is. Do you have any idea, Job, how powerful God is? Have you ever heard of a teacher like him? Has anyone ever had to tell him what to do or correct him saying, you did that all wrong? Remember then to praise his workmanship, which is so often celebrated in song. Everybody sees it. Nobody is too far away to see it. Don't you love this? I love this. It's like Elihu is railing against them. He's going, you don't have the first clue about God. Right? Take a long, hard look. See how great he is. Infinite, greater than anything you could ever imagine or figure out. He pulls water up out of the sea, distills it, and fills up his rain cloud cisterns. Then the skies open up and pour out soaking showers on anyone, on everyone. Does anyone have the slightest idea how this happens? He, how he arranges the clouds, how he speaks in thunder. This is ascribing worth. Can I just be really honest and say we suck at it? We do. We're like, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Oh, you're so good. You're so, oh, you're just so good. I love what's happening here with Elihu. It says that he was like a volcano erupting lava. He could not contain himself anymore because he has seen God. He has a revelation that these other men don't have access to right now. And he just goes on and on, pouring out this wealth of knowledge of who God is. I'm going to continue reading. Just look at that lightning, his sky filling, the filling light show, illuminating the dark depths of the sea. These are the symbols of his sovereignty, his generosity, his loving care. He hurls arrows of light, taking sure and uh, taking sure and accurate aim. The high God roars in the thunder, angry against evil. Whenever this happens, my heart stops. I'm stunned. I can't catch my breath. This is what ascribing worth should feel like. We should be overcome. We should also feel like we're going to spontaneously combust because we can't hold anything else in. That's what he's feeling like. Do you hear what he's saying there? Whenever this happens, my heart stops because I'm stunned. I can't catch my breath. He's so good. We have to get good at this. Our lives should be a show of his goodness. Listen to it. Listen to his thunder, the rolling, rumbling thunder of his voice. He lets loose his lightnings from horizon to horizon, lighting up the earth from pole to pole. In their wake, the thunder echoes his voice, powerful and majestic. He lets out all the stops. He holds nothing back. No one can mistake that voice. 
his word thundering so wondrously, his mighty acts staggering our understanding. He orders the snow, blanket the earth, and the rain soak the whole countryside. No one can escape the weather. It's there. And no one can escape from God. Wild animals take shelter, crawling into their dens. When blizzards roar out of the north and freezing rain crusts the land, it's God's breath that forms the ice. It's God's breath that turns lakes and rivers solid. And yes, it's God who fills clouds with rainwater and hurls lightning from them every which way. He puts them through their paces, first this way, then that. Commands them to do what he says all over the world. Whether for discipline or grace or extravagant love, he makes sure they make their mark. Job, are you listening? Have you noticed all this? Stop in your tracks. Take in God's miracle wonders. Do you have any idea how God does it all? How he makes bright lightning from dark storms? How he piles up cumulus clouds? All these miracle wonders of a perfect mind. Why, you don't even know how to keep cool on a sweltering hot day. So how could you even dream up making a dent in that hot tin roof sky? If you're so smart, give us a lesson in how to address God. We're in the dark and can't figure it out. Do you think I'm dumb enough to challenge God? Wouldn't that just be asking for trouble? No one in his right mind stares straight at the sun on a clear and cloudless day. As gold comes from the northern mountains, so a terrible beauty streams from God. Mighty God, far beyond our reach, unsurpassable in power and justice. It's unthinkable that he'd treat anyone unfairly. So bow to him in deep reverence, one and all. If you're wise, you'll most certainly worship him. The audacity of this young one speaking up to put God on display. We're far too comfortable with our great big God. We need to search him, know him more. To be able to put him on display in all his brilliance. If there's an Elihu anointing, I want it, right? I want to be able to describe him in these ways. See, the problem is, is that we have put a God on display that's a rule keeper, keeper only, like Job and his friends fell into. We need to put the God on display that is capable of doing anything at any moment. I don't really know what this looks like, but I like to try and imagine it. What it looks like today, because these fellows are just sitting around a campfire, I believe. You know, they've got nothing. Job has nothing left. He can't even, like, host them correctly. He lost his home. Did I mention that? He has nothing. 
But what I want us to understand is that there is no earthly wisdom and there is no earthly wealth that can compare to what God has for us to discover. We talked about the scripture last week that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter and it is the glory of kings to search it out. God's not hiding himself from us, but he does want us to search him out. We need to get hungry, hungry to know him. I don't know him the way I want to know him. I want to know him. Like I want us to have a yearning, just churning inside of us going, I've got to know you. Before I do anything else, I've got to know you. I've got to know you. God, the world is hurting. I have to know you. You know what I love most about this book? Is that Elihu going on and on and on about his wealth of knowledge of God and how great and powerful and mighty he is, that it draws God to the conversation. When we magnify him, it draws him to the conversation. You want to know God? Begin to magnify him. When it says that where two or three are gathered, there he is also, I will tell you that sitting around with a council of people who are willing to step into your griping session is not going to draw him. But if we're going to be if we're going to be, if we're, let's, let's steward this well. Like if somebody comes, and I am not saying to just keep all your problems inside. That is not what Angie is saying. Say what it is. Surround yourself with a council of people that will magnify the Lord and bring him into the conversation. Because it's there that we're going to have revelation of how to cause that mountain to move. We need to get a audacious with our problems. Because even in a room this size, none of us should have problems. All of us know God well enough to pull on his greatness and say, I have the solution. <gasps> I have an idea, right? There should not be a problem among us. There shouldn't be. I'm telling you, there shouldn't be. We have the wisdom of God that we can pull on at any time. The problem is, is that we are uncomfortable with the unseen realm. We're very un uncomfortable with the unseen realm because it's actually going to take audacity to pull on it and believe that that is what is true about us, right? Lisa and I were just having a conversation, I think maybe even last night, and I was like, you know, this whole, like, the it's the foolish things that confounds the wise. That's so real. You know what I'm saying? Like, that is so real. You have to be willing to appear foolish. I, I, I messaged Vince earlier in the week, and I was like, okay, we have a theme happening here. I'm making weird like there is this theme of people making these 
foolish, Cody fingers for those who are listening, um, foolish financial decisions based on obedience. Are you following me? God said, but it doesn't line up with the world's wisdom. But mom said, dad said, I must do this. I've been raised to make sound decisions. You know what I'm saying? So it really is the foolish things that confound the wise because the foolish thing is to grab hold of the unseen realm and say, I believe it. I believe what you say is true. And I'm banking here. Yes? Do you know what I'm saying? So we have to surround ourselves with a council of people who are tugging at the unseen realm, who are willing to step into the thing and say, I have the solution. This is what I see. Oh, gosh, I get so excited just thinking about this. Who wants to bring a problem? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, let's surround the problem with wisdom that comes from the throne. We have the answers to the world's problems. We have the answer to one another's problems. And I'm not, just so we're clear, I'm not talking about the, I can fix all your problems kind of thing. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about pulling on the wisdom that belongs in the unseen realm and bringing it into the seen realm and causing the thing to manifest because I have enough faith for it. Do we have enough faith to live that kind of life? We we, we like to play around with the idea of healing. I'm going to tell you a very real story. Um, this week. Um, so Robin hired a, a lady who um, is, is working the front desk right now. And she has a sister who ha- has ovarian cancer, right? And, and has been sick for some time and doesn't have hair and wears a scarf. Well, anyway, I came out of the office and I came around the corner. She was at the front and I'm telling you what, it just hit me. And I was like, I'm the solution. Guys, We have to start considering ourselves as the solution to these kind of circumstances. And I got closer and I was like, are you Carolyn's sister? And Carolyn was like, yes, this is my sister. And I was like, I've heard a lot about you. And she's like, she has. (laughs) And everything in me wanted to dive in and go like, I'm the solution. I know the one who has healing power. I'm going to be really honest with you and tell you that I became a little cowardice in this moment where I was like, I wanted, I saw myself going all in. And then I considered, oh my gosh, I don't want to give someone hope who's holding on to every ounce of hope she can touch. What if, God? What if it doesn't happen? I need to get around more healing so that I can rightly ascribe worth to him as the healer. So I don't second guess this scenario. So I just dive in head first and I don't care about anything else. But I'm not around healing enough. I haven't like surrounded myself with understanding who he is at this, as the healer. Do you know what I'm saying? And I'm really sad about it. I wanted to be the solution, but I didn't step in. John and I last night, this is a huge, huge thing in my life right now. 
we're walking to the game. We went to the, the K-State game last night. It was senior night. Derek was, you know, being celebrated. He's a senior. And we're on our way to the game, and I didn't even say anything to John, but there was a lady in front of us whose leg was bowed in, like completely in, and she was like having to like almost like bring it around just to take a step. And everything in me was like, I have a solution to this. But I didn't do anything about it. And I'm telling you all this because it's building, guys. It's building. God is showing us. He's unveiling situations for us to be able to step in and truly be the solution. We just haven't done it because we haven't rightly seen all that he's capable of doing. We don't know how to ascribe worth to him in these scenarios. So we find the chicken exit. Yeah? Could you feel it? I was like on the verge of tears actually watching this lady walk, and instead we just picked up our pace and passed her. If we don't have honest moments like this, we can't course correct. Yes? And the thing is, and this is what I was telling Lisa earlier, I was like, we can hold our hands open-handed about the outcomes. But what I can't reconcile is offering someone hope and not having it manifest. That hurts my heart. To want to go all in and go up to a stranger and be like, I have the solution. And not see it manifest. That hurts my heart. I want to be able to rightly ascribe worth to who he is as the healer. As the one who raises the dead, but I've not seen it done enough. But this is what I'm saying. We have to surround ourselves with a council of people who know how to ascribe worth to his name. Yeah. Can we do that? And I do, like, I'm not, I know it's just opportunity. Like, we're going we're gonna to get better at this, Right? We're going to continue to press forward and get better at this. I'm sorry. I'm making you cry, and that's making it worse for me. (sighs) Okay. We are. We're going to get better at this. But we have to be honest about what it is that we're doing. I know that just my mind changing about these scenarios is movement. It's forward progress. We need to begin to ask for the bravery and the courage to go all in anyway. This is like unknown territory for me. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing, but I am honored that he would be opening my eyes to these kinds of things, to where I get to see myself as the solution, especially in a woman who's dying of cancer. You know, and I know, I know that there is actually, God is going to represent an opportunity to be able to go all in. You know, it's going to come back around. So can we begin to ascribe worth to his name in different ways, higher ways, better ways? 
Because if we're doing this corporately, do you remember a few months ago I told you that God started talking to me about a corporate anointing and I had no idea what it meant? This is pieces of it. If we can begin to ascribe worth to his name in better ways, I'm not saying we're doing a bad job. I'm just saying there's more for us. There's more for us to discover. So what if we just together start declaring who he is as healer? And I do want to tell you a really another story, and I'm claiming this. My family's probably going to roll their eyes, but I'm going to claim this anyway. See, my husband lost his truck, and <laughs> this is such a country song, you guys. <laughs> but listen, I'm still here. <laughs> you didn't lose me. <laughs> Our dog is fine, but this is a story I'm telling you. Yes, yes, I'm going here. I, I haven't even like made this this very like clear to to my family, but I'm claiming this because I know it's true. On Wednesday, was it Wednesday morning? Wednesday morning? Thursday morning? Thursday morning. So on Wednesday, before we came down here for a meeting, the dog was wild, like a two-year-old puppy, wild bouncing around the house, bolting out the door, running from one corner of the yard to the next. I mean, he wild. We wake up Thursday morning. I take the girls to work, come back. John had already let Shane out and I was getting coffee and I looked over because the cat was meowing obnoxiously because it's what he does because he's part Siamese. And I looked over because he was over on the kennel and, and I was like, is that Shane? Shane hates his kennel. Like he, you have to force the dog into his kennel, but he was in his kennel. And I was like, oh, this is, and it was open. Yeah. And this is not good. Like, why is the dog in the kennel? And I was like, Shay, Shay, come here. And, and he wouldn't come. He wouldn't budge. And I was like, oh no. And so I went over and I was like, Shay, come here. And he finally gets up because he loves interaction. He's a very needy dog. And um, would somebody get me tissue? So I'll stop like sniffing. Um, and so anyway, there's some right there. I'm grossing my own self out. Um, anyway, so he gets up and he's shaking like crazy. And he can barely even, thank you so much. He can barely walk. Like he's like, trembling. And I'm like, what is going on here? And, and you could just, you just know, like when there's something in the air that's not right. That's what this was. And um, so I was like, buddy, are you okay? And I touched him and he like shuddered at just the touch. And I was like, oh my gosh, this dog is in some pain. And so I let him out and it wasn't, it wasn't good. He like, you know, he was to be really, can I just be really honest here? He was pooping blood and yeah, it was bad, 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 bad. And I thought, God, I think the dog is like on top of it all. I think the dog's going to die. <laughs> and um, so he came back inside and he's very visibly uncomfortable and doesn't, he can't even like sit down. He's just, the dog was struggling and I had to, I had to go to work. And so John started taking care of him and got him to lay down, but he just sat there shaking and, um, just lifeless. The dog was lifeless. And, um, so all day it was like that. And we hid him from, from Lily and we, we picked her up 
Shane is Lily's dog. Everyone knows it. And um, picked her up from work and, and, and brought them home, but we had to leave immediately to get to practice on time. And so it was pretty easy to kind of like, Lily, hurry up, Lily, get in the car. <laughs> Cause we didn't want her to worry. And, and then John and I came home and the kids came home later and we were like on the way, we were both like, kind of like grieving and not really saying a whole lot. And he finally blurts out. He's like, I just hope he's not dead kind of thing. Cause he was really in a bad way. And, um, it, he wasn't, he was, he was still alive, but still very lifeless. And, um, and so w after Lily got home, John called her out and was like, honey, he's not doing good. I don't think he's going to, to, to make it. And so Friday morning, still alive. And, um, I, I was leaving to take you guys to work, I think. No, you drove yourself. Anyway, I had to be down here. That's what it was. And um, and I, I was getting ready to walk out the door. And I was like, just like felt that, just that uh, pulling that Holy Spirit does. You know what I'm talking about? Like, maybe you should just pray for the dog. <laughs> and I was like, oh, there was an idea. <laughs> and, 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 and praying for healing is different than worry. Oh, God. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's different. This was different. And so, and he was standing there because he just doesn't want to sit down. And I don't, I don't know what was going on, but I just put my hands on each side of his head. And I was like, you will live and not die. And I kid you not, life came back into this dog. I, I, and it was just one of those situations where you're like, huh, well, that might've taken. And I left. <laughs> <laughs> but but he's still alive <laughs> and and somewhat obnoxious again and yes I mean just like he's he's full of life and so it's just like I, I don't know how the dog went from like seriously he was going to die and because it was kind of the same scenario of one of our other dogs where she just didn't want to get up and um and so anyway uh, he's 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 alive. And so I think that, yeah, that's awesome. That's good news. What a brat. Anyway, <laughs> so I'm telling you this because God will give us opportunity to play, I use that loosely, play with his power. He will. We just have to take it. You have a testimony? Okay, let me, I'm going to, I just want to read this one last part because this is where God responds. And then, yes, I would love for us to go into testimony because what is testimony? Yes, it's ascribing worth to who he is, right? Okay, I want to read this one part. <laughs> Chapter 38, and now finally, God answers Job. <laughs> And he does so from the eye of a violent storm. Wow. Why do you confuse the issue, Job? Why do you talk without knowing what you're talking about? Pull yourself together. Up on your feet. Stand tall. What's God doing? Is he rebuking Job or restoring Job? How we see this makes all the difference. 
He's absolutely restoring Job. He's like, friend, you've lost yourself. Let me remind you of who you are. Get up. Sound familiar? What did Jesus say to the man who was by the pool of Bethesda? Pick your mat up and walk. Job, get up. Yeah, I love how God talks to us. Pull yourself together. I have some questions for you, Job. Where were you? I love this. His line of questioning starts with all of them. Where were you? Where were you when I created the earth? Tell me, since you know so much. Who decided on its size? Certainly you'll know that. Who came up with the blueprints and measurements? How was it how was its foundation poured and who set the cornerstone while the morning stars sang in chorus and all the angels shouted praise? I know God. God is like, he is so okay with himself. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like we do great things and then we're just kind of like, well, you know, let's give God all the glory. Right? Not God. God's like, listen, where were you, Job? I love it. And who took charge of the ocean when it gushed forth like a baby from the womb? That's right. It was me. I wrapped it in soft clouds and tucked it in safely at night. Then I made a playpen for it and a strong playpen so it couldn't run loose and said, stay here. This is your place. Your wild tantrums are confined in this place. And have you ever ordered morning, get up, told the dawn, get to work, so you could seize earth like a blanket and shake out the wicked like cockroaches? As the sun brings everything to light, brings out all the colors and shapes, the cover of darkness is snatched from the wicked. They're caught in the very act. Have you ever gotten to the true bottom of things? Explored the labyrinth caves of deep ocean? Do you know the first thing about death? Do you have one clue regarding death's dark mysteries? And do you have any idea how large this earth is? Speak up if you have even the beginning of an answer. I really, really, really recommend that you at least go and read from, I think it's chapter, yep, chapter 38 on. Like, finish it. Finish the book. Because God goes on and on boasting about himself. It is amazing. And read it in multiple translations because you'll get something out of each of them. It's just fascinating to me, the way that God responds to Job. And again, you have to see it as him restoring him, not rebuking him. Because that's who God is. That I can tell you for sure. That's who God is. He, he might rebuke us for a moment just to get our attention so that we can rightly be restored. All right. Kalita, you want to come and share?
Yeah, about um, over two years ago, my brother was diagnosed with cancer, cancer in his left kidney and a tumor on his right adrenal gland. And uh, they they did an experimental treatment, uh, immunorepressive one, and uh, he got really bad sick. And the guy says, oh, it's working, man, because that really made you sick. But he still had the cancer. It hadn't didn't go away. And so finally, just a week and a, what, two weeks ago, they set Doug up for cancer surgery and removal. And um, because there was a tumor on the other side, they thought possibly it was metastasized. And uh, so we were praying for him. And I had lots of people praying. I know Angie was praying and different, uh, my vision writers group at board and, uh, you know, people I talk to, family. I have family that believe, you know, uh, they go a route, you know, but they believe they go medical route, of course. But but anyway, he, they they did the surgery, and I can't say enough about KU Medical Center's surgery. It was really good. And they removed the left. He has a funny-looking kidney. It was a horseshoe kidney. It's hooked together in the back. Like, it looks like a horseshoe back here rather than on the side so they had to remove that kidney half they removed that they removed the adrenal gland and they sent the lymph nodes to the laboratory meanwhile we're praying he's got a daughter that's a strong believer and uh, my sister is to him we were, we're really praying that no 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 metastasis after three years and um so we waited and we got the lab report back and uh no metastasis. After three years, it hadn't spread at all. And uh, and the uh, adrenal gland was a, just a tumor, fatty tumor. So that was nothing. So we were grateful for that. But also then after that, he started having uh, atrial fib with his dialysis. And we're like, oh, great. You know, we've got him this far. He's going to heal. Yeah. Okay. Your atria beat real fast, and because of that, your ventricles can't go that quick, and so it, it it's hard to, your blood pressure drops, it has dropped to like 70 for the top number, and um, so they were a bunch of cardiac surgeons said, well, well, I think we really need, you know, you get way more than you need at a big hospital, and, and they're there's four or five of them, and they're saying we need to do, we need to put a pacemaker in, which doesn't really help with atrial fib, but you know, got to do something. So, um, well, I kind of got myself in trouble, but I wrote about it, and I, and my sister-in-law said, uh, "Don't do this. You know, this doesn't look right." So we just started praying, and he, his dialysis right after we started praying. He didn't have any more of the atrial fib. So we're just calling that, that that's a healing that's going to continue. You know, well, he has his, he has to have dialysis, strong dialysis now for a while. Because, you know, when they open you up from the sternum to below your belly button, you, you can't use the peritoneal, which is running a fluid through your guts. You know, I'm running it out again. So they have to do the dialysis that's, that we all know about. The one where you lay for three hours and they circulate the blood through a machine. And uh, as it is for now, that's what he's having done, but he's he's tolerating it now without the atrial fib. So I praise God for that. And I praise him also that there was no metastasis in three years. 
that that stayed there. He is so faithful. But I know what Angie meant when she said, I do that all the time. I see somebody and I go, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. But if I pray for her, I don't just want to discourage her, you know. You know, yeah, God's got this, you know, and then she still walks off like this. I, I, I want to see action because that's how you honor him is seeing the action in it. But anyway, we do have a great report on my brother. And I see it all as a faithfulness of, of God in that whole situation. So there you go. Awesome. Thank you. That's incredible.